0: knowledge puffs up but love edifies and if anyone thinks that he knows anything he knows nothing yet as he ought to know but if anyone loves God this one is known by him therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one for even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Therefore, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, are the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple will not have the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. For whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your word, for the truth it gives to us. Thank you that we can understand it. And Lord, help us to take in your word and to read it, to meditate upon it, but allow it to transform our lives. May your spirit guide us. May we be able to discern and be able to apply it to our lives. And Lord, we thank you for each one here. You know their situations, their circumstances. You know our lives. And help us to be encouraged and to love you more. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This morning, as we look at this chapter, and as if I were to think of how do we classify or how do we title it, um, really in an organizational manner, this chapter would be Things Offered to Idol, and we're going to do a look or a study of knowledge and practice of the Christian. And so I don't know if we have the PowerPoint, but there we go. And uh, as we think about it, things offered to idols. First of all, can we eat it? A view of knowledge and the practice of Christians. And uh, so then as we get to the subject of here, we look at it, what is the correct response about eating the food sacrificed to idols? That was what they really were trying to address. And so we're going to break it into two parts. And the first part, if you follow along as I read, you saw the word knowledge repeated over multiple times. But what do Christians know or believe? And so as we as we look at here, part one, and this will be verses one through six. What do Christians know or believe? And as we as we mentioned, the subject earlier in verse one and verse four, now concerning the things offered to idols, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols. They had questions. And these, this is the church at Corinth. And the first thing we want to look at is the fact that even if we, if we um, take the text and understand here, as Paul is addressing these Corinthian believers, because there was a mix of believers in the church of those who came out of paganism, came out of, of they were considered Gentiles. There was a, some Jewish background, but the majority of them were from the Greek Roman background, Hellenistic Jews, even those who were Jewish but they followed the culture of the uh, Greeks. And so, first thing we want to look at. That Paul addresses is that knowledge is not enough for Christians. Knowledge alone is not enough for Christians. If you look at verse 1, it states, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge. And what is that knowledge? Oftentimes we look at what what is that knowledge? And the understanding between the reality of an idol and the divine. And he goes through that knowledge and, and looking at that definition. But the challenge is knowledge alone can lead to pride and sin. So if you're following along an outline, knowledge alone can lead to pride or sin. So we, while all have knowledge, it doesn't just stop there, that understanding. Because what Paul says is in chapter 1, we know that we all have knowledge and knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up or inflates. We understand that term if you've ever had, um, whether a beach ball or something, you inflate it. Sometimes we inflate it with our mouth or a pump, and it blows up. Uh, there's Aesop's fable of, of, a, a fable of the frog and the ox. And there's an ox that was grazing in a swampy meadow and chanced to set his foot upon a, a parcel or group of young frogs and crushed nearly the whole bunch. And then uh, what happened is one escaped and went to his mother and said, Oh, uh, mother! You know it was. There was a big, four-footed, dreadful beast. It was huge, and this uh, this old frog, who, if you know, sometimes like if you think about a bullfrog or one of those, they puff themselves up and says, "Well, how big was it? It couldn't have been that big." And uh, the little frog says, "Yes, it was huge. It was big." And so the the frog puffs up and swells up and says, "Was it this big?" And the little frog says, "Oh, it was much bigger than that." And uh, she started to puff up even more. And the little frog says, if you were to burst yourself, you would never be half its size. And provoked, usually when someone is provoked, says, you can't do that, especially men. If you tell a man, you can't do that, they go and try it. But what happened is, says, oh, well, tries to inflate. And so puffs up, fills up. And what happens is the frog explodes. And This is this little fable, and usually the fable has a meaning, and what Aesop is telling us that what often occurs is when we swell up or try to erroneously fill up with, um, become something that we cannot be. Because inflate, as we know that even knowledge alone can lead to pride or sin, inflate our ego to fill up. And Christians can erroneously believe that knowledge of the Bible or even their length of time as a Christian puts them in a greater spiritual position with God. See, they fail to empathize with others who struggle with a secular issues. If you've been around sometimes Christians and believers, there's a a common vernacular. They use certain words and phrases and sometimes it can... Um, be overwhelming to someone who is not part of a church or part of a Christianity. They use terms. And it's important here that for some, Paul warns that knowledge alone can lead to this pride and sin. And as we look at what takes place in Corinth, the knowledge about idolatry, about um, understanding at your place in Christ, because you have people from different backgrounds. And so as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 8. It presents us with the dilemma that Christians who have not involved, been involved in the practice of idol worship. I don't know. Does anyone have a, a background in idol worship? I'd say that not jokingly, but obviously different backgrounds. But sometimes, you know, as if we don't understand that as a culture, a, a modern, westernized, quote unquote, civilized culture. But idol worship in the first century and during the time of Corinth was prevalent. It was all over. And so understanding, you know, someone who came out of that, it's a transition that requires the assimilation into a lifestyle of Christianity and biblical freedoms. When you come out of a different uh, background where everything is structured, everything is organized, it would be similar to Judaism. Because Judaism, you know, you're supposed to follow these laws. And some of us are like orderly. We like structure. We like um, having a schedule. We like to have, um, to be able, engaged in boundaries. And what is um, clear steps. And the Jews, even they did not immediately assimilate into Christianity without the challenges of understanding law and grace. Because they felt, you know, I'm I'm a better Christian if I follow these steps. So it's important for us to understand because even the Jewish, um, when they came to Christ, they believed that you had to become Jewish in order to be saved. And we see that throughout the book of um, Acts and into even Romans. So as we understand knowledge that can lead to prior sin and knowledge does puff up, we also must understand the contrast of that is found in verse 1 as well. It says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. But love edifies. And so love for God motivates us to care for others. See, love is an action evidence. Love is an action Evidenced by our actions toward others. So when we understand our relationship with God, we can express love toward others. um, Love toward others through that discernment of knowledge. How to take that information and especially love that understanding of what is real and um, where others have come from. See sympathy. We use that term sympathy and. Nowadays, people don't really even sympathize with others, but sympathize is an emotion really that helps us be emotionally connected with others when they go through difficult times. You might say, oh, I have sympathy. Uh, We don't send sympathy cards anymore, but we try to, oh, you know, I feel sorry for you, you know. But the difference is empathy actually is the attempt to put ourselves in their shoes. And it's really challenging because in today's world, we don't really try to uh, view... Um, another's position we can just look at their position and feel sorry for them but to place ourselves in their position or set of circumstances that's what empathy is and that's where as we think about the difference or the contrast between love and knowledge it's one thing to know where another person is coming from or as these believers and these ones who are coming out of pagan worship of idolatry it's one thing to oh you know just get over it to understand there's a difference they didn't have the same problem with that, with those. And so compassion and our love for Christ teaches us to love others as Christ loves them. And I think that's an important, relevant, um, present-day process that we need to understand. And so when we love them, we are displaying the love of God and loving Christ. And so as we understand here, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, as Paul's expressing. And then he gets back and says in verse 2, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. Sometimes we understand that Christians have open hospitals, orphanages, orphanages served in extreme conditions because of their love for Christ. But the basis of that, and while things they've done to gain attention for themselves, it's important that true selflessness builds others up and lifts up other believers. It's not done to just show who they are, but it's because of their love for Christ. And that's a, a constant battle because as a believer, we'll always struggle with pride, the, our motivation. Why are we doing this? So as we, as we understand the, um, first of all, this knowledge and to have that knowledge of, of where peop, other people are coming from and Paul says, okay, as a church body, there are ones who are coming from different religious backgrounds. And so we can't just be dismissive, and that's the danger that sometimes Christians have. And even as you come into a church or welcome, the desire is to be able to um, encourage one another. Church should not be divisive, and that's the Is in today's society is that churches sometimes in society, there's so much uh, that whether it be different organization groups that want to divide us. But biblically biblically speaking, Christianity unites us because we're all one in Christ. And so as we look at the second thing, not only do we look at knowledge, Paul then um, comes into this discussion of, is it wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, for most of us, I don't think you'll have a problem about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because uh, sometimes we think of if, you know, we think, okay, I've been to a restaurant and maybe there's a, um, a a Buddha or a small statue and then they have a plate of food, you know, maybe for good luck or something. It's like, I'll still eat there, no big deal. And really, that is uncommon nowadays. But really, the question is, as Paul is asking, is it wrong to eat meat? Or the people are asking, is it wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And... Paul doesn't really directly answer the question yet. What he says is, well, first of all, what do you believe about the idols? And I would wager that most of us, if you will, if there were a statue or if there were idols around or we went to, a um, say, overseas or there were a lot of statues, it wouldn't necessarily affect us because we didn't grow up in that culture climate or that religious system in society. But in Corinth, it was a big issue. And so we're going to look at some of that. First of all, Paul addresses, as we see in verses uh, 3, it goes down, but but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. First of all, understanding is in Christ. You have known um, as a believer. You have the spirit of God inside you. But verse 4, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And then he addresses that first statement. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. And he's talking about, he doesn't contradict himself. He's just saying, first of all, look at the cultural and the religious climate at Corinth. But one thing he says here is that an idol is not a real person. And while if you grew up in a religious climate where there are um, taught in society that there are many ones that you pray to or many ones we would call it almost superstitious but that's how it is or maybe you grew up and say step on a crack you what yeah some of you might know it. some of you might like i've never heard that before but we have all these little um uh, superstitious statements. You know, I mean, okay, what happens, um, you know, should you walk under a ladder? Or how about a black cat in your path? There's certain things that we, we might not do while it might not hurt us, we still might not do it just because we don't want to uh, press our quote unquote luck. But in the city of Corinth, idolatry was very prevalent. And where Paul says an idol is nothing in the world or specifically a nobody, an idol has. No living spirit. It's just a statue. But idols were all around, and they were a major component of the culture and the people living in the city. And the importance of these statues was that it represented or um, symbolized the presence of each of these little g gods. And there was a history of what was taken. So you have this mysticism. You have uh, the superstitious, and there were many gods at Corinth. And those who came out of idol worship were essentially brainwashed in their religious understanding. And so you have to um, understand presently that it was part of their culture. If I were to think about each of you grew up maybe in a family or how to do certain ways. Maybe you grew up in a city that had a a certain football team or sports team and you only cheer for them. And anyone else is the, the enemy. You don't cheer for them. You know, you can look at uh, college footballs coming up, you know, Michigan or Ohio State, you know, and they don't, in, they don't intervene. You know, you have different cities and, okay, guess what? Pizza, you know, it's New York style or Chicago, but you have these cultural, how you're taught up even in, in your family, the ways to do things, what is proper. And, uh, and sometimes we look at those as being law and these individuals who are brought up in, in, in Corinth, these temples were built out of public funds. And taxes supported certain cults. These were called civic cults. And so temple priests were selected in the same way as the magistrates or the mayors of the city. So it was like in elections that they would go through. And the Rome, one thing about, we know about Roman culture is there are a lot of um, how to do the process of government. Think about even still how the lasting effects of Rome. We have a senate. And that is Roman in nature. And then there was no separation of religion and state. And historically, there were multiple cults within the city of Corinth. And I couldn't even list them all in my study. I've never read so much that I have in studying uh, for this uh, chapter. But cults here is defined as a system of religious worship and ritual. And civic cults were religious deities that were supported by the Romans and city governments. So what you have is permission even to entrance into different temples varied. And sometimes you could only enter by being part of the society or club. Others, especially the mystery cults, required initiation rites and mystery cults included Uh, Religious groups not sanctioned or supported officially by the city. So what you have is the city of Corinth. Okay, the leaders, they had certain um, ones that they followed, and I'll I'll continue on in a list of those later as we go on. But there were certain religious temples that they sponsored. The state, uh, the Roman state would sponsor, and then also the city would have, and each city had a protector, if you will, or a certain god that protected that city. And then you have multiple other um, temples and worship systems that were approved or supported by the city. But then there were also other ones as well that were these mystery ones and maybe international religions that came in as well. And they were all part of the city. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Damascus, Syria, for a medical um, mission journey back in 2000. And uh, we went to which is now, um, it was destroyed by ISIS, but um, Palmyra. And in that city, um, there was a temple of Baal, ba- Baal, and that was a mile square. So if you think about it, we understand a mile square city blocks, but think about that if, if there was a temple, excuse me, a block that was a mile square dedicated to Baal, or just the, the prevalence. If uh, The only closest thing I was trying to think about, how can I illustrate it to you? If every business Uh, That we see uh, take away a marketplace. There's a marketplace, but if every business we see was a temple, maybe that would give you a better idea of the influence of what on the city of Corinth. Uh, Because it wasn't just churches, um, as we you know, churches are 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 not as prominent in our cities nowadays. But businesses. If every business you went by was a religious temple or a sanctuary, and the sanctuaries in the city were these kind of like healing spas. Um, that they had, and they believed that they, you were given divine powers or healings as well. But let's go, let me go to worship. And so as we look at the idol worship at Corinth, first of all, it involved three parts. So uh, when you would come to a temple or even the worship of an idol, um, it, there were three parts. First of all, a sacrifice. So that included like a gift, food, an animal. You would bring your gift to the um, the God and have that. There was also what's called a votive offering. Sometimes we think votive, oh, a candle. But a votive was making a vow and um, request, if, uh, make a vow, and it was a conditional statement. And so you're, they're saying to the God, I will do this if you, an, uh, if you do this. So it's kind of like a, a promissory or a conditional statement. Um, I will do this, and uh, if um, you do this for me. It was a request that a, a, um, a worshiper was giving to that idol or that, quote-unquote, little god. And then there was prayer. And that was part of idol worship. And you, you have to remember, within the temples, there were so many people. Everyone was, quote-unquote, religious in these temples. And there would be celebratory times monthly, and sometimes weekly, but monthly, and then even annual, that the, the whole city was involved in. And so there were these different celebrations and it became uh, very wide within the city as in almost shut down. And so we don't have that same understanding of the influence it had. But also offerings. When people gave offerings, they had three purposes for these offerings. So when you gave an offering to one of these um, temples or gods, it had three purposes. First of all, it gave honor to the deity. So it was kind of like you were part of this club or group or organization. And some were multiple, you go to this one, you go to this one, you go to this one, and you would go through a process of multiple different, quote unquote, temples or gods. And then um, there was also giving thanks for a past action. Sometimes if, if something occurred, the, the deity answered your prayer, you had good crops, or you had a good business, then you would go and, um, and give, an, um, because of that, an offering. Or sometimes you were, given, you were given offering to avert an evil. Say, you, oh, you know what, you know, there's been threats against you or something happens and you, you say, oh, no, there's an illness and um, something, someone put a curse and so you, you give a sacrifice to prevent that or maybe to receive a benefit. Uh, you, know, you would give a sacrifice to, for the life of your child or health. There's multiple reasons why you would go to the temple or worship. And I give you all this background because it's an essential part. I want you to understand the makeup of the city, how, you know, even when Paul says, I, I see that you're religious back in Acts, understatement. But the whole point is at Corinth, idol worship and the temples was a major part of every individual's background. And so Paul is calling out, you know, saying, hey, I understand that you all have knowledge of this. And how do you distinguish? How do you separate even from that? But here, these offerings, they would give offerings. And, and then they would have, you know, part of it, the rituals, even in the temple, um, as you see in Jerusalem, you know, where they had burnt offering sacrifice or what they would do. Um, it reminds me of um, the newly married husband was asked about, you know, how his marriage was. And uh, he tells his friend that, you know what, you know, marriage is great. Uh, my wife worships me and, uh, you know, everything goes well. He says, but the problem is uh, she keeps on her cooking. is like, uh, you know, she treats me as a god because she keeps bringing me burnt offerings. But uh, it's not the same way as in offerings of how the, uh, in the temple was, you know. And so th- that's an important part. And and next week I'll kind of explain a little bit more about those sacrifices, the details of that, and why it's such an important part of the culture there. But what we see here is not only Paul expressing that. Guess what? This idol, who you, um, who people go and interact with daily, it's very routine, but it's not something that is personal or real. And so as there are those who, as they in- interact with others, you have to understand that those actions that the people have done in the past, it's not real. That deity, it's a statue. And it's important that it's a constant reminder that while it is all around them, in the city, any worship of an idol, it's not a real person. There is no power in that. If you were to go to the Old Testament and you think about the story of Elijah, And Elijah is making fun of these uh, prophets and saying, maybe your God is sleeping, you know, and he put up the sacrifice. And if your God is real, then rain down fire. And so he mocks them and says, hey, maybe he's sleeping. Guess what? There is no reality to any of these other belief systems, these gods. It comes about through a belief system, you know, that they've created, but these idols are not real. And they become, after a while, they've just become magnified in what they've done or who they are, or this supernatural interactions. And so Paul expresses them, guess what, God, they are not real. But understand, as he says in verse 4, we go back to chapter 8, verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, or no one, literally is, not no, is no one, and that there is no other God but one. There is no other God, only one, the one true God. And then he goes down in verse 6. He says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we live. Now he isn't saying that there's two gods. There's one God, which is still a difficult concept for us because he's talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And this God was... Shown through us through Jesus Christ, who was a true individual person and shows us who God is. There is no other God. And so Paul declares to the Christian believers that there is only one God. And so let me just give you the background in that context again, because in the religious culture of the city of Corinth, the prominent and diverse temples, there are multiple deities. And let me just give you some of those. Apollo. In the main temple, he was the main temple deity of the city of Corinth. You have Poseidon, Hermes, Athena, Asclepius, who was a, more of a, a medical background, and they had healing temples to help as well. Hera, Juno, the, and that was the queen goddess of women in marriage. Demeter and Kore, or Pers, Persephone, Octavia, Aphrodite. And then they had these sanctuaries, what they call the healing sanctuaries. Think of it as a modern-day spa. And the modern-day spa, some of there's there's a lot of New Age belief in that as well. And it's very similar. What we get that from is the Roman spa, um, these healing sanctuaries. And they were built for Zeus, Apollo, Jupiter, Hera. You have this mix of Greek and Roman culture. Not only that were there these deities and gods. There were more than that as well, too. There were also what's called these mystery cults. And these mystery cults required an initiation rites, uh, Dionysus, who is the god of um, fruitfulness, vegetation, and especially wine. And the Dionysic festivals provide an opportunity for stepping outside of the daily routine. And so there are these festivals that included not only drinking wine and engaging in sexual activity, but also participating in significant features of Greek civilization, where they had choral singing and even mimes. So if you think about what was taking place and they did this and so these groups and the initiation into this cult might be compared to kind of a, what we call a tribal initiation where they had to go through process and Greeks joined in and it was a, um, a Dionysiac mysteries. It was accompanied by initiation also into other uh, sexual perversions as well. And so that's there are these mystery cults. But now if we could go back to Thinking about who is Demeter and Kore, and Demeter or Ceres was the goddess of grain, and the daughter was Kore or uh, Persephone, and they were famous religious agricultural festivals, known as the Greater and Lesser Eleusinian Mysteries. And what they did is celebrated sowing, sprouting, reaping of grain, and they reenacted this in the festivals in the city. We don't live in, a, in an agrarian society, but if I were to ask you, how many of you lived on a farm or worked on a farm? Okay, some of the older ones. Most of you, you know, if you like going, okay, milk a cow or a goat or, you know, that's not for me, right? It's too smelly, messy. But agrarian was part of, everyone was involved in some way of agrarian society and they relied upon that. And what occurred was, you yeah, have the celebration of the grain and the cycle of grain. It was pictured in this, what they call a the myth of, of chore And it was thought to be parallel to the cycle of man. So what they would do is, okay, the cycle of grain, and you have the cycle of mankind. And it's told in a, um, by a, a, a poem by Homer to Demeter and talks about Hades. If you've heard of Hades, the um, Greek god Pluto the god of the netherworld, and how he wanted a wife and he carried Cory off into the depths of the earth. I don't know if you've heard of that. Maybe you've read some of the Percy Jackson series or if you've studied some of the background of uh, the Greek and Roman gods. But what happens is the mother Demeter, through long days of searching during which she came to Eleusius, refused to make the grain grow. And finally Hades was bidden to send Cory back to earth. She came back to light as the grain maiden, and gave birth to her son, Plutus. And so this maiden, Kore and the son Pluton, the rich one, and Plutus means literally wealth in grain. So there's a lot of symbolism in all of this. And because Kore had eaten this pomegranate seed, a symbol of death and birth, she could not be completely released. And so the compromise was reached in where she spent one-third of the year with her husband and the rest with the mother. And then satisfied with this, Demeter, the goddess of grain, allowed the grain to grow again and taught the Lucians these rites. And so every year and during certain times of the year, you know you have the cycle of grain. Certain celebrations throughout the city, they would go through this and reenact this. And the entire story was elaborately reenacted um, in the city. And so then they became, okay, the parallel is with mankind, just as grain came up out of the ground and was reaped to yield mankind's breath and be used as seed, so was a girl taken out of her parents and her quote-unquote virginity was killed to bring forth new offspring. And when a man died, he was buried in the earth to partake mystically in the cyclical renewal of life. So you have these parallels, and I just the reason I give you all this is because we can make these parallels, and you, we think about um, what the past has. If you think about the Maypole and all these rites and different, um, even with we we're in the fall and the harvest, and most of us is like, oh, we don't really think about the harvest much. If you're a farmer and all the tractors, and and interesting in Arizona, there's like four uh, four growing seasons here, but if we were to be part of this culture, it was all part of the society and the culture here. And it's important because our understanding, understanding, Paul expresses to the Corinthian believers that these other beliefs are invalid. And what happens is this mythology, to what most of us, it sounds a little absurd, but there are many present day religions that are even mixed in with the natural and the supernatural. Some people look at Christianity like, how can that be? Because it's supernatural and the natural. If you think about the um, LDS, Hinduism, Animism, Shintoism, there are these that you have this combination or what we call syncretism, and you add on. And while it may sound foreign to rational people, Christianity, as you as I mentioned, cannot be combined with or added to. Um, nothing can be added to Christianity. It's not like you just add this and then become part of it. And that's what often happens is, okay, I'll take a little bit of this if it'll help me. Sometimes if we think about, okay, before a competition or maybe if you played sports, okay, wish me luck or, you know, you wanna, you have a routine, you don't want anything to do that might mess that up because we're kind of superstitious. But religiously speaking, if I can emphasize to you the veracity, the truthfulness of one God, and expressing our belief through that one God. And in our knowledge of having one God, while there may be the celebration of other religions around us, it's important that we understand that one true God. And Paul is expressing to the Corinthian believers that these other beliefs are invalid, and there's only one true and living God. And what has happened in within Christianity, what's called religious pluralism. It's kind of added credibility to to this religion, this religion. Oh, they believe differently, but there are many ways to get to heaven. As long as you're sincere, you can get to heaven. But that's not what the Bible presents. It says that there only is one true God, and it's through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And our understanding of God and our relationship with him will predetermine our actions toward God and others. Now, we're not, we're not necessarily um, supposed to go out and... Um, as as we see in the crusades and other religions, just to battle them. That's not the attempt here. Paul's expressing an understanding to, to um, he's expressing to us that we must have a correct biblical understanding of God if we want to worship him correctly and please him. What is important for us to understand is that we are personally to know who God is, and I think that that will, our uh, love for him, our understanding of the one true God, will be visible in our actions toward others. Because when we emphasize our, our understanding, our background of who God is, even our theology, then we can rightly express the difference between other belief systems, religions, and even as Paul's expressing these cultic practices and these idol worshipers, who the one true God is because there is a personal relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. And it's important to have that correct biblical understanding. And Paul expresses that basis is is essential even before we begin to address the issues of some of these other things about food offered to idols. How do we respond to that? Paul's saying your worship of the one true God, first of all, your understanding of that has to be correct. Because some of these Christians were wondering, well, what about this? What about this? What about in this situation? They're doing what's called situation ethics. But what was more important is to understand and grow in our knowledge and our understanding of Christ. That's why Bible study is so important. That's why historically what has happened is people have have said, oh, this is what I believe, or, you know, led people erroneously because they haven't had the one true, the Bible, to how you can know and learn about who God is. When we read what the Word of God says, the fact that a God who created this universe cares about each of us personally, A God who forgives. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And these are powerful statements because of the backgrounds of different people. And when you have gone through, think about a brainwashing um, of trust. What occurs is you've been brainwashed to the point of you don't trust others. You don't trust yourself. And you're coming out of this religious systems, and then you're trying to figure out what is truth. I've been told my whole life that this is true. You know, sometimes parents um, have told us uh, things erroneously, and then you realize that it's not true. How many of you, your parents taught you about the tooth fairy? You know, not harmful. You know, oh, here you go. Here's a dollar. Here's a quarter. You know, tooth fairy, you get money. Then you realize, wait a second. You know, why first of all, why would any tooth fairy want these teeth, first of all? You know, secondly, you know, that's not real. And it's harmless, but sometimes, you know, it can... As a child, you know, you think about truthfulness and trust. Wait a second, what happened here? That's not right. But as we go through life, you know, it's as we learn about trusting others, people let us down. We think about what takes place and think about a structure where um, I, I think about. I'm a Kevin Hobbes fan, if you've ever read those comics, you know, and, and sometimes the father tells the sun, um, Calvin, what happens, you know, oh, the sky, you know, why, why is it blue, or what, where does the sun go afterwards, and he tells them all these absurd, um, tr- which aren't truths, but what happens is, sometimes people believe these things, and if you believed it as truth, then your reality is distorted, and that's what has happened in our world, our reality is distorted, what is true, what is wrong, and so then you have no quote-unquote absolutes. And so you question everything, and your reality becomes only what you believe. And that's a dangerous thing, because here Paul tries to express and tell them, you know, be patient with these other individuals, and understand that the base, our basis of our understanding of God is essential for us as how we interact with others, and the issue of the Corinthians and the action and practice of whether they should eat the meat offered to idols. And really what we'll do is, and I'm sorry, there's going to be a week of pause in between because we'll have the uh, chaplain Lorente here. But what happens is I want to um, express to you just how powerful and how pervasive this idol worship and this religious system were to the Corinthians. And if I can come away with one thing if i want you to come away with one thing in conclusion it's to understand that when we have correct knowledge we can have correct practice as a christian biblically speaking we must not be prideful in our knowledge toward other believers nor unbelievers see while we have the truth we must understand that not all who believe not we must understand not all will believe that truth because they do not know jesus christ nor have the spirit of god within them who gives us true understanding it also is important to remember that other Christians have a different spiritual journey than the one we have taken. If you think about uh, Christian your journey as a believer in Christ, some of you may have come to Christ at an early age. Some of you may have come to Christ as a teenager. Some of you may have come to Christ as an adult. Some of you may have come to Christ later in your life. Some maybe grew in a Christian up in a Christian home. Some of you didn't grow up in a Christian home. But guess what? It really doesn't matter in that but what matters is in your spiritual journey, in your spiritual walk, to continue to grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is, and then also how do you apply it to your lives? How do you express that and learning about that? But Paul says, guess what? There are those who have a different journey and where they're at. And it's important for as believers, each Christian has a different spiritual journey than the one that You yourself have taken. And so you can't just assume or say that, you know, my journey is better than your journey or how I grew up. But to understand, we all have the same knowledge. And when it comes to the word of God, the truth that comes from that, there are certain foundational truths that we believe. And there are some others who are going to put their beliefs into a little bit different practice. Maybe they set boundaries in their spiritual lives because of where they came from. Are they wrong to do that? Absolutely not. The danger is when they call it that doctrine, and there are churches that have erroneously stated, okay, the Bible says this when it doesn't. But what is essential is these foundational truths that the Bible presents. And so the Bible is um, prescriptive where it says, thou shall not do this. This is um, what the Bible says, and we believe those as foundational truths. That's why it's called the fundamentals of the faith. There's also the practice of that. Is it right? You know, we believe that it's important that we should go to church on Sundays. Is it doctrinal? It's a pattern that we follow because they met on the first Sunday. Is it important essential? And so those are those are questions that we as believers discuss. Okay, reading the Bible, devotion, praying, you know, worshiping. And so as we interact and our knowledge of who God is, It is important that we emphasize growing in our spiritual walk with Christ. And as we discuss with others, You know, how do you practice? And this is what Paul is going, what we're going to be looking at. Now, what about this meat offered to idols? Because I don't understand that, you know, but we're going to look at that in two weeks about how there are actually restaurants that were next to the temple and these different foods. And some of them even ate raw meat and these, if you will, kind of secret societies and clubs. This wasn't a Yelp club where they met together, but literally it kind of was as we see these societies of when they're getting together. And so it will help us, I think, understand um, culturally why this eating meat to idols was so um, prolific and prominent and why it's a little difficult for us to understand that because there are many who have taken this context and totally taken, out, taken this passage and distorted it and tried to put it in today's context without understanding what it meant at that time. But that's why we'll look at it and understand knowledge. If you have the correct knowledge about God, about the Bible, then we can also have the correct practice of that. I think that's an important part. And above all, humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and we'll see that as we interact with others. Shall we pray?